something we're bringing to the text. And it talks about him being the only true God. It talks about God incarnate and that he shall testify. In other words, he's in the old words of Francis Schaeffer, a God who is there, but he is not silent. One of the most incredibly horrible things that might have ever happened at theology is back in the day when they found out, well, I guess there has to be a God because we've got a universe and we're kind of stuck with it, but maybe he's just silent. And a God that's silent is every bit as useful to our lives as a God that does not exist. So that's a heavy thought. But when we get into this next part too, God unchanging. So he's all knowing that we talked about last week. He's all powerful. He's also unchanging. That means that whatever God was like then, that's what God is like now. This artificial separation that we put between the Old and New Testament might do a disservice to us once in a while, right? Because the same God that was on the mountain when it burned and shook, and if any animal even went to the mountain, they were supposed to kill it because it had touched holy ground. That's Jesus. I know we kind of got used to the Reader's Digest Jesus. He was much easier to digest, right? 
He's tall and blonde. Looks like he's been surfing quite a bit. He's got a nice red sash. I don't know where that came from. He's usually got a lamb around his neck because lamb's big Jesus. I guess that's supposed to show he's gentle and stuff. And, and Jesus definitely had that side to him. One of the places where we see him have that side to him is when he's around children, right? He says, let the little children come to me. And he places his hand on them and he loves them and he blesses them. And then you see another scene and he's hanging out with the Pharisees and it is a different Jesus, right? This really intense, in-your-face Jesus who has very sharp words to say, especially for religious leaders and people behind pulpits, right? But the majesty of God, God only wise. These are just the chapter headings in this part two. The word is truth, the love of God, the grace of God, the judge of God, God, excuse me, God the judge, the wrath of God, his goodness and severity. And then number 17, the jealous God. Now, of course, we can't go into all of those. And from my talks with you, I feel that most of you have had a pretty good dose of the wrath of God somewhere in life. (laughs) Like you've gone to a church or something like that where they kind of, overdid one aspect of God's character or personality to the exclusion of another. Like they were really on the throttle on the wrath of God thing, but on the break every time it came to the love of God. Now that's a dangerous dichotomy to have in a church, right? But one that we almost never talk about is the jealousy of God, which is really important. I'm going to talk about it today, just to make it awkward. Now, of course, jealous people are bad, right? There's verses in the Bible where it says, you know, a jealous man is a fool and that kind of thing. But there's this other way where many times in the Bible, I think 11 times, God describes himself as jealous about his people. Like there's good and bad jealous, right? Is it wrong for a man to be jealous about his wife? You would say not necessarily, right? (laughs) Not necessarily. It could be, but it might not be, right? Yeah. You know, your wife is beautiful and everything. If you're walking through the grocery store and some guy notices she's beautiful, that's not necessarily bad. You're not going to punch him over that, but you will give him a sneer, won't you? You'll go as far as, hey! He was put his finger, if he was a toucher, then he's getting smacked, right? Now, strangely, this is not a sinful or a bad jealousy. This is a jealousy every man is supposed to have. That's his wife, Right? That's his partner for life. One of the worst things anybody can ever do is start to create friction or disunity between a man and his wife because they're supposed to be jealous for each other, right? So in the same way, God has a jealousy for his people. He does not want to share them with anybody else. And he doesn't even want the cooling of affections for the other. One of the funny things that happened when I was studying law is there there used to be this entire body of law for the cooling of affections. Sounds weird, right? But if somebody did something that would cool the affections of a wife or her husband, that's not like real bad, right? But you could sue. You could sue for even the cooling of affections between husband and wife. And yet, cheddar. In this, God says again and again that he's jealous about his people because they're his. And he loves them. So there are two ways that people come in between God and his people. So even though our text, as in the bulletin, is still Galatians 4.9, but now that you have come to know God or rather be known by God, the text we'll be going through is in 1 Kings chapter 18. 
One of the times when God got jealous. Now, here's the thing. You might think that, like, liberal theology and all of that is a pretty new thing. I mean, we're very contemporary people, right? We're scientific people. People like 150 years ago, they didn't even have airplanes. What could they have possibly known about anything? Right? They didn't even have computers. Anybody who didn't grow up with computers... I mean, I know they existed in some, like, government lab, but when I was a kid, we did not have laptops. We did not have cellular phones. We did not even have video games. I still remember the first video game that came out. Me and Dan were talking about it the other day. You remember it was a box, and you hooked it up to your TV, and on your TV, you did not have a remote control, and you had to walk all the way to the TV, and click, point, 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 and then walk all the way back to watch the show. And if it was a commercial, you had to walk all the way back, point, 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 point. And we had how many, how many channels? We had three. Apparently Mark was living in a fancy neighborhood. He had four <laughs> But we had three. Have people changed so much between 100 years ago and now? I mean, people. Not just stuff around people. Has the human heart grown incredibly wise and good over the last 100 years? No. Or are folks pretty much the same? Go back two or 300 years. Were folks like terrible then, but they're so good now? When did we have the biggest wars that humankind has ever had in the history of the world? Was it 2,000 years ago? Or was it not even 100 years ago? Right? First and Second World War. I mean, this, this, is, this is the age where folks have been killing each other. Right now, we have not gotten a single bit better. And that's because the situation in the human heart and soul has not gotten a single bit better. Right? We've got Veterans Day tomorrow. Uh, if, I, if I wasn't in the middle of a sermon, I'd have our veterans stand up so we can uh, identify them. I know that several of them are out today. But there's a thing about being a part of a country, right? I don't care what country you're from, you love your country. There's, some, there's a country called Vanuatu. Me and the kids are like watching National Geographic or one of those shows, and this guy's talking about how much he loves his country. And his country is kind of you know, a muddy island out in the Pacific, and I'm like, First, I'm thinking, it's not so great a country. You should come to, like, Mississippi. <laughs> but then you've got to remember, that's his country. He loves his little muddy country, right? Now, our country, arguably the greatest, most powerful country that's ever existed in the history of the world. I mean, we've got nuclear weapons. It's not really an argument about who's been the most powerful. Ancient Rome was the most powerful empire that ever was, right? But who'd win in a fight? I think we'd take them out pretty easy. All we'd need is tanks, tank cavalry. Cavalry, cavalry. <laughs> but we are arguably the most powerful nation that has ever existed in the history of the world. And that only comes by the blessing of God. And here's the thing. Many of the greatest nations that have ever existed in the world before were actually horribly Evil. So mere power itself doesn't get you there, right? But in this, are we allowed to sit here and say, I am an American by the grace of God? Well, biblically, you certainly are. And if we say to ourselves, we have peace in our time, we're not at war on every side, we have food on the plate, right? And we have jobs. Are we allowed to say, thank you, God, for putting me at this place in this time? You are actually supposed to. 
Every people and every civilization goes through ups and downs. And quite frankly, I have an easy time identifying and saying, we're on one of the ups, upturns, right? Pick another period of 500 years in human history in which you'd rather live, right? Would you pick the one when there was no indoor plumbing? When it was 30 below, you had to walk out to the outhouse? What about before they figured out, like, dentistry? And everybody used to die at like 45, Right? So this is a time of God's abundant blessing. There are dangers to the time of God's abundant blessing. Just like... <laughs> My baby's very sensitive. Just like there are dangers to the times of the absence of God's blessing. Now this in Israel is a time of God's great blessing when he made them powerful. He made them powerful militarily and what they did was they took the national religion which was the Worship of Yahweh and the temple and the sacrifices and all of that. And they said, you know what? We're going to make all of the other religions valid too. Every religion has a place for us. We will worship not just our God. He's still our God, right? But we're going to include all these other gods too. The gods of all the other nations. Does this sound familiar to you at all? They didn't give up Jehovah. They just wanted him to make a little room for the gods of the nations. And frankly, God got mad. Let's start at chapter 18. We're just going to read through a lot of this until we get to the great debate. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. In the third year, saying, go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. When says somebody feared the Lord greatly, that's a compliment. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and all the valleys, perhaps we may find grass to save the horses and the mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, is it you, my Lord Elijah? And he answered him, it is I. Go Tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. Now notice the response from this righteous man, Obadiah. And he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? In other words, Ahab, the king of Israel, the person whose job it was to protect true religion in the land, just for saying that a true prophet of God has come, Obadiah thinks Ahab will kill him as soon as I say it, right? He's in fear of his own life from the man assigned to protect the true church. As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you, trying to find Elijah. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they have not found you. And now you say, go tell the Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone to, from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you off somewhere I know not where, because they're you know, those prophets are mysterious cats, aren't they? And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. 
Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord. Behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Now, I know you guys probably think when the prophet of the Lord shows up, that's a good time, right? Everybody's happy to see a prophet of the Lord, but then think about it again. And you'll see Ahab's point. Worst thing that can possibly happen is a prophet of the Lord show up. Causing trouble, dissent among the people, telling them not to pay their taxes. I don't know, I just threw that in there because, you know, seems to fit. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Now, this is the true prophet of God for the people. And Ahab has the audacity to call him the troubler of Israel. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Baal is kind of like a general term for the false gods. Now, therefore, send and gather Israel to me on Mount Carmel. Send the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel was the queen, and the king had a table, and the queen had a table, and they could have anyone in there that they wanted. And as they collected the taxes from the people, they would have huge feasts for lunch and dinner. And all the people who got to come there, those were the people that were esteemed and had status and were held to be high and mighty. And all of the prophets of these false gods came to her table to eat right in the view of all of the people, which was shameful. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping about between two different opinions? Now, that's not a compliment either. How long will you go limping about between this side and that side? Oh, I want the true God. Oh, but these gods are nice too. Can't we all just get along? And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you continue limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, you follow him. But if Baal is God, then you follow him. See, the issue wasn't that they didn't know who the true God was. The issue was that they wanted to share him with a lot of other gods. They wanted a halfway point in the middle. Do you remember in the book of Revelation where God said that he was going to spit out an entire people in a church because they were lukewarm. They were neither yes nor no. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood. Now, you know from the Old Testament, that's a sacrifice, right? That's a tried and true system for sacrificing an animal, for offering to the Lord, to compensate for sin and to restore one to the good graces of the God. And frankly, they did it too. And I will prepare the other bull. And lay it on wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God. And I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. 
Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh Baal, answer us. And there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made and at noon Elijah mocked them. Cry louder because he's a God, right? Maybe he's out thinking or he's going to the bathroom. That's the real words in there. I'm not compensating for the word of God. He says maybe he's going to the bathroom. The Bible's a weird book sometimes. Or maybe he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and you need to wake him up. And they cried aloud and they cut themselves. You see, the intensity of the emotionality of religion has nothing to do with whether it's true or false. You can have true and good emotions about the true God. People can also have intense belief and true and deep emotion about false gods. They cut themselves and bled for their God to answer them with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. And at midday past, they raved until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and they repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. So again, they poured out. By jars, we're talking about probably 50-gallon drums, just pouring out water on the whole thing, and they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and also filled the trench around the altar. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Israel's the other name for Jacob. Let it be known this day that you are the God of Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and consumed the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal and not let not one of them escape. And so they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook at Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of rushing waters. So Ahab went up to eat and drink and Elijah went to the top of a mountain in Carmel and he bowed himself down to the earth and he put his face between his knees and he said to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. And he went and looked and said, there is nothing. Then again, he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, 
a little cloud like a man's hand rising up from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain overtake you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was upon Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab all the way to the entrance. Now in this, one of the things that Packer says here, the jealous God, doesn't it sound offensive? For we know jealousy, the green-eyed monster, is a vice, one of the most enormous soul-destroying vices, whereas God, we are sure, is perfectly good. How could anyone ever imagine jealousy to be found in him? The first step in answering this question is to make it clear that this is not a case of imagining anything. We were imagining a God, and then naturally we would describe to him only characteristics that we admire, and jealousy would not enter into the picture. Nobody would imagine a jealous God, but we are not making up a God by drawing in our imagination. We are seeking instead to listen to the words of Holy Scripture in which God tells us the truth about himself. For God, our creator, whom we could never have discovered by any exercise of the imagination, has revealed himself. He has talked, he has spoken through many human agents and messengers, and supremely through his son, Jesus Christ. Nor has he left his message and the memory of his mighty acts to be twisted and lost by distorting processes of oral transmission. Instead, he has put them on permanent record and in permanent form in the Bible. When God brought Israel out of Egypt to Sinai, to give them his law and his covenant, his jealousy was one of the first facts which he taught them about himself. In the sanction of the second commandment, inscribed by the finger of God, he writes, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Do you remember that now in the Ten Commandments itself? So he loves 